For the time being, I'd like to bring us to God's Word, and that this morning is found, well, through <laughs> in between the covers of this book, that's all God's Word. This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter, and there we're going to read two verses, and they are verses 13 and 14. Let me remind you that this is God's Word, it is holy. It is inerrant, infallible, it's inspired by God. This is God's Word. Luke 2, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here ends the reading of God's word. May it be a blessing to his people. Now for those of you who would be um, regular, a little more regular maybe at Neely's Creek, you probably know me to be a pastor who generally has a bit more of the scripture put forward on any given Sunday for the sake of the people and the ministry, which is the ongoing work of the church, to be able to be wise in the things of God, we would need to be able to be wise in his word. So that is our regular practice. And the reason that I am comfortable this morning putting this together and forward as a have is that tonight, I trust the Lord will bring us back together again at six o'clock, in which case this entire passage is going to be put forward. Also, uh, last week we were in the portion of this chapter which follows what we're reading. So let me just orient us again as to this sermon within the scope of the sermon series within Advent. Uh, each week in Advent, what we are doing is we are putting forward events that presumably many of us are probably familiar with, but maybe not everybody. Uh, but the order is somewhat reversed, meaning last week we were reading about that portion of Scripture and understanding having preached uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. And here we have an announcement, a portion of it before us from heaven, carried by the host of heaven, angels. And we're going to focus there this morning, understanding that this is within greater contexts. Because this year we've also gone through the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a little bit left. The remainder of the Heidelberg Catechism, the, the final portion, which is entitled by, entitled, by the way, Thanksgiving, has us looking at the Lord's Prayer very intently, very uh, purposefully, and phrase by phrase. And so there's a portion of the Lord's Prayer that I think ties in very beautifully to Advent and to the angel's announcement and to our lives as we today prayed together about that thing called forgiveness which some of us are very quick to desire, whether or not we receive it, which some of us are very, oh, glad at least. That's an understatement. When we receive forgiveness. But we know that there are those who are unable to forgive, and that is a heavy weight. We know that there are people who are unable to forgive us. Perhaps in this room there are people that we are unable to forgive simply can't, or worse, won't. And thus, when we pray this prayer with God's people in the presence of God as His church, we ought to know what it is that we're praying. 
So would you listen and look? It'll be on the, on the wall there to this question and answer from the Heidelberg on this Lord's Day. The question is this. What is the fifth petition? Before I read the answer, there are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. This obviously would be number five. The first three have to do with that which concerns God and where we need to be wise in this life and in eternal life as to who he is and what he would expect and even demand rightfully. The remaining three as to how to live in this life, in this world, at this time and amongst one another. And Jesus teaching this prayer. Before I read the answer, I'm sorry. This is a mini sermon within a sermon. You guys are just being awash with contexts all over the place. I apologize if I need to. But Jesus, in teaching this prayer to his disciples to pray for all time, you'll admit, won't you, that it isn't a very lengthy prayer. It isn't difficult to grasp. The concepts aren't so long that you need to have a bibliography to understand them. And the bibliography itself is going to be pages and pages because it refers back to that which is contained in the prayer that Jesus taught. So it must be important. And he must have said everything necessary. Well, of course he did. And so far in the Lord's Prayer, there's only three petitions that regard us and our life in the face of God, our Creator. And one is for food, sustenance, life itself. The next request, and there's only one remaining, is for forgiveness. Now, in the prioritization of kingdom values, if we understand Jesus to be the King of kings, the Son of God, the one who lovingly came and is lovingly teaching his disciples, is lovingly establishing his church for a world that does not know love, is it important, would you say, to the king? Is it important to the kingdom? Is it important to those who would make up the kingdom that forgiveness would be a high priority? Perhaps. Here's the answer that the Heidelberg offers anyway. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood. Do not impute to us wretched sinners any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. That's what the Heidelberg would glean from Psalms and Romans and 1 John and Matthew. Not only that we would be forgiven, but that we would forgive. And lest we think God is operating in a vacuum or knows where we're weakest, and so that's where he's going to pound us the hardest, but stand back and watch to see how we figure out how we're going to enact this kingdom value for which we have no example. Oh, quite the opposite. I like the word that the Heidelberg put there for us, and it's called wholehearted. And so as we proceed then with the remainder of our time together with this portion of God's word and as his people who are called not only to know themselves as forgiven, but then also to forgive, I would like us to understand 
that God is talking to people, and therefore this is real-time applicable who have fallen short. If there's anybody in here who thinks that you have, in fact, fallen short, when we were having that time together in the pastoral prayer, and we were quoting within our own prayer, we meaning me on behalf of us, Romans chapter 3, we've all fallen short. We've all admitted that, I hope, because it's true, and there will be no peace until that is admitted. But if there's anybody in here who really feels that before God you have fallen short and it is very difficult to live inside your own skin, let alone in relationship to others, know that he knows that about you. Know that that is because of his love the primary reason that he has sent Jesus. You have fallen short. And what Jesus has come to do is to restore that which has fallen, to put back together that which has broken. So I would imagine that most in here probably understand that we have fallen short. But there's something else then in this life that we, I think, are pretty aware of, and that's internal and it's external, and that is that we are also fallen apart. It's true, isn't it? We can look at the Garden of Eden if we would like to for a moment, take the spotlight off of ourselves, because it's just a little bit too uncomfortable. But there in the Garden of Eden is Adam blaming Eve, Eve blaming the serpent, Adam and Eve blaming God. Things have fallen apart. There's an estrangement with God by way of sin. And then there's an estrangement between those who bear his image. Relationships have fallen apart. The heart is no longer whole. The relationship with God is impossible to have wholeheartedly. The relationship with one another is impossible to have wholeheartedly. And this is why every time we come together, but certainly every time we come together in this season of Advent, we come as those who are so desperately in need and know it. And it's evident, evident, evident to us all the time that we've fallen short and we're falling apart. So as we go back to Luke, if you are somebody in here and inside, you are fallen apart. Looking around the room, you would expect that. Nobody else would know that. Nobody else would suspect that or think that because your wishful thinking is on the outside that no one will know the state on the inside. God loves you. He is speaking to you. He is not ashamed to be near to you, and he will not have you broken. He will not have you fallen apart. He will restore that which is to be whole. And we will see that here. As I pick up my Bible and we go to Luke, I'm going to tell you something that is at least what plays in my mind's eye. I'm going to try and put it in yours, and I'll try and do it briefly. Once upon a time, I bought a house. This is a true story. Once upon a time, sometimes true stories start with once upon a time. Once upon a time, I bought a house. And... Uh, I was at that time in my life a youth minister, uh, freshly minted, and single at the time. So the external conscience, apart from the Holy Spirit, wasn't there. Uh, the house that I bought had a burn pile out back, 
And I grew up with burn piles. Y'all have probably grown up enough in the country that most of us know what a burn pile is. You pile up all the stuff for however long it takes, a week, a month, a number of months, and then it's a huge pile. And at a certain point, everybody knows instinctively, it's time to burn the burn pile. You just know when. There's one behind the cemetery out here. The people who burn the burn pile just know when it's time, and then it gets done. That's how burn piles work. I have some level of common sense, and I'll admit it, I have some. Um, so... I did the responsible thing and I called the authorities. Hey, I'd like to burn the burn pile. So I'm wondering what I need to do on, uh, along the lines of burn permit. Oh, are you inside the city limits or outside? Oh, I'm outside the city limits. Oh, okay. Are you X amount of whatever from any other house? I'm like, no, we're way further away than any other house with this burn pile. Oh, is there a source of water nearby? Yes. Does a lake count? It does. Super. Do I need a burn permit? Nah. Okay. Other thing about burn piles, they're really fun. And people, of course, generally like fire when it's under control or it looks like it should probably be under control. Uh, so you have the youth group come out. That's what you do. And then you light the fire, and now it's just whatever's going to happen is going to happen because there isn't like a cancel button. That's just on. And so sure enough, burn pile's doing great. It's burning, I mean, big. And of course, it's nighttime because that's when you get the most fun out of a burn pile. And all the kids are there, and um, all of a sudden, there was a pretty bright light. It wasn't related at all to the fire. And then with that bright light came a voice. Who's in charge here? And instantly... I'm standing all by myself. It is as if we, and I say we very lovingly, we have been trained that when there is a sudden appearance of authority, we run. We run fast, and we run far, and we try to hide. And I'll admit that it took a half a second for my brain to register, oh, that's me, I'm in charge. Because I already had, you know, stretched and I was ready to also do the same thing. I'm going to run. Um, rest of the story continues. That's all we need for now. We can pick it up later when you and I are just sitting down talking sometime. But I only imagine that this really pales in comparison to what the shepherds experienced that night when they were out in the fields. So tonight, again, the full passage. You'll understand a little bit more if you don't already what is happening at this point. But an angel comes. The angel has that announcement about that one being born in Bethlehem, laid in that manger. Here's the message. And don't forget that we are talking about this morning, by God's design, um, forgiveness. It's a short passage, so let's walk through it carefully and slowly, to, slowly together. And suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying. All right, the biblical definition of sin is fallen short. It's, a, it's an archery term. You didn't hit the target. You missed. Now, when it comes to sin, that is also a willful action on behalf of the one who's created in God's image, who is required, as a matter of fact, to keep God's law and to do so perfectly, and in fact, then has missed. 
the biblical penalty for sin, as I hope we know, but if not, I'll just reiterate, the biblical penalty for sin is death. Now, it could be that those shepherds created in God's image, fallen in sin as are we, and we have that in common, so we probably have a fair amount of imagination that can be applied to their situation. I want to back up and look at this very carefully. Um, suddenly. What happens suddenly? I'll tell you what happens suddenly. SWAT teams happen suddenly. They don't give you advanced warning. They don't tell you in advance when they are going to come. They don't knock on the door. They don't wait for you to open the door. No. They show up. You're surrounded instantly, and they knock the door down. Guns drawn. That's how things happen suddenly when it is happening with, again, the evidence of, the appearance of authority. Angels are the messengers of God. Angels have been deputized, so to speak, to represent God here on earth, whether it be with a message, whether it be with action. So for those who know themselves to have fallen short, for who, those who know internally and externally that their relationships as a result of being estranged from God are also broken, fallen apart, well, the thing about sin is it's our responsibility. We're guilty, we're guilty of that. And so suddenly this angel has appeared, but listen, we keep going. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. What's happening here? That word host means army. That means that the army of the Lord has just shown up on the scene all of a sudden. They are authorized. They are empowered. They will do God's bidding. All of earth for all of its history since the Garden of Eden knows that judgment is coming. And there is at least room for question as to in this moment what is going to happen next. Does judgment begin now? Has the end come? Has God finally run out of patience? Is he going to exact tribute? Has he sent the army to take care of the enemy? Which is me. And which is you. He'd be fully in his rights to do it. But we know God by his word. His word here entrusted not only to the angel, the front runner, but here to the entire army, ready to fight. Verse 13 continues and concludes, praising God. I don't know if that brings somebody comfort or if that just increases the fear. Here are the angels authorized by heaven who suddenly appear on the scene to confront those who are lost in sin. And they are praising God. Why would that potentially increase the fear? Well, because if I look at my own life, I am not the most consistent praiser of God. I am a sometimes praiser of God. I am an insufficient praiser of God. I am an often praiser of myself. I know I have fallen short. Oh, I know. And I know that you know. And now we have the army, the host of heaven praising God, they're doing what I don't. 
They're doing what I am required to do. If I was sunk, it is pressed further upon me how sunk I am because these are only the active agents of the holy God to whom I am accountable. I'm not even accountable to them. What do they say? Verse 14 begins, glory to God in the highest. Again, has peace increased at this moment or abject terror? What happens at this moment? I think you understand how SWAT teams operate. That is a level up of, you know, the, the, the county sheriff that came with his flashlight and was enough to dispel an entire youth group into the night. The, the, the angel army, praising God, saying glory to God in the highest. We're probably not going to fight, are we? I'm telling you, that youth group could have taken the county sheriff. We could have done it. Like, it would have been a bad path forward from that point, but we could have. We didn't. We ran. If that angel army shows up and is praising God and is saying glory to God, and I know myself in my sin now in their presence, not taking up arms, we just bare our necks, don't we? Go ahead. I've got nothing to offer. I've got everything to lose. I guess I'm ready. At least it's you. And now what do we learn about God? Because know this, he is the one who has been sinned against. And that by Adam and Eve and every single one who has borne his image from that time until now. And what does he do? What message does he give his army authorized to execute judgment? They sing. They sing and they declare a message of peace which is dependent on the one who is lying in the manger. Remember that word, wholeheartedness? Let's finish this verse. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, folks, peace doesn't just mean an end to war. This is the Hebrew shalom. Shalom means peace, and when shalom speaks peace, it means this. Relationship with God made whole. There is peace. There is no enmity between God and his people. The relationship between those who belong to God made whole. There is economic peace. There is justice. There is righteousness. There is mutual love and esteem. There is forgiveness received and forgiveness given. Peace. No more war, no more striving, no more pain, no more suffering. 
So what God sends his angels to tell those shepherds, to tell the world, including us, shalom, peace. You have sinned against me. You have sinned egregiously. You have sinned naturally. And I am offering peace. The penalty will be paid. The one who will pay the penalty is lying in that manger. The one lying in that manger is my son made in your likeness so that he can pay for your sin. And in him and through him is peace. And only in him and only through him is peace. And in this moment in your life, internally, externally, relationships, only in Jesus is peace receiving his forgiveness, but then being required and actually wholeheartedly desiring to extend it to others. So, two quick stops, and we are done. At the end of Genesis 3, this is where the account of the fall is contained. Adam and Eve sinning against God, God cursing all that he had declared good and very good promising in verse 15 that there would be one coming who would in fact be the seed of a woman who would address this curse, who would establish peace, who would put down sin and Satan. Well, God in verse 24 does this. He, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam is banished, Eve with him. Mankind is banished from that fellowship with God wherein the tree of life is and this. Thus, any who would continue to take from the tree of life continue to live. God in his heartbreak, God in his righteous, holy wrath, God in his kindness and his forbearance bars Adam and Eve and you and I in our fallen state from taking of the tree of life, lest we be preserved in our fallen state, which is broken, disintegrated. He would have the relationship with his people whole. He would have his people's relationship with him and one another also whole. He would have peace established. Thus, you are banned, you are barred, and there is an angel guarding the way. You will not, you will not have peace until you have access to this tree of life, which means we're in community once again. And understanding that that angel, those angels were set to guard. Understanding that these then angels, the whole host came to announce at Jesus' birth that God is declaring peace with those upon whom he is pleased. And then the attention is drawn to Jesus. Now, if Jesus doesn't himself have peace, and God has no right to point us to him in order to achieve the peace that we don't know without him. 
If Jesus, in fact, does know peace, have peace, is the Prince of Peace, is the Son of God, then he absolutely can offer it. So let's think for a moment about Jesus' peace. Does Jesus have enmity with God? No, none at all, ever. Has Jesus ever sinned? Will Jesus ever sin? No. He has not, and he will not. Jesus has a perfect relationship with his Father. So hopefully that is something that is appealing to us who have fallen short, appealing to us who are fallen apart, to see a whole man and to see a whole relationship with God. Of course, what we in our sin proceed to do is to disintegrate him, to destroy him. We kill him. We hang him to die. And according to God's plan, we must. There's no other way. And so if we were to be a, confronted by the heavenly host in this moment, knowing who Jesus is, Son of God, Prince of Peace, King of Kings. And we killed him. Where is any hope of salvation? Well, guess what? It's in him. And he would offer in this moment his peace to his people. So for those of you who have fallen short, for those of you who have fallen apart, if you belong to Jesus, you've been forgiven. And lo and behold, you can forgive and you'll know freedom the more and the more you exercise that. But regarding this peace that God has declared in and through Jesus, which belongs to his people, I'd like us to finish with John 14, 27. And this is Jesus speaking. It's a good place, I think, to end our time together. Jesus says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus' peace with God is perfect, and when Jesus gives you his peace, he gives you perfect peace. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is what forgiveness looks like. It's costly. And it's beautiful. And we have it. Pray with me. Father, I ask simply that as we continue to, in days and weeks to come, encounter Jesus, and encounter your word, pray the prayer we've been taught to pray. May we have it heavy upon us. And we are the moral agents praying the prayer that we've been taught. Presumably that we could do that which we are called to do. Father, thank you for the example of what love is and of what forgiveness costs and that it is a high priority to you. Father, may there be peace on earth. May it begin with us may it be found only and ever in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.